Well, it's quite an honor to, to be here as well. It's a first for me, so to be here preaching, so, and maybe the last, I don't know, we'll see. But um, no, it's, it's certainly an honor, and, and an honor to know that I'm the first bow tie here. So uh, anyway, with that, uh, it's a pleasure. As Jonathan said, I'm an associate pastor over at Emmanuel, and it's been a pleasure to work with Jonathan uh, over the last couple of years. And so uh, it's my privilege to be here this evening as well. But before we get started, why don't we open with a word of prayer? Father God, what a blessed day it is to gather here as your body and to hear your word. And so we pray for your, you to guide us this evening as we, as we speak and as we listen, that you would open our hearts to hear what you would have us hear, this message, this good news of Jesus. And so in this time, may you open our hearts and draw us ever nearer to you as we go through Uh, Matthew chapter 27. We ask these things that glory would go to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Christianity is all about the cross, remarks Phil Riken in his book Salvation by Crucifixion. He continues, the cross has always been the central symbol of Christianity. When archaeologists dig through the ruins of antiquity, they have one certain way to identify a place of Christian worship. They look for a cross. When they find it painted on a wall or carved into stone or even laid out on a floor plan, they know that a church has been there. It is the chief symbol, he says, in defining reality of the Christian faith. So what is the view of the cross today? For some people, the view of the cross is simply that which they wear around their neck, a pendant, a 14 carat gold diamond encrusted necklace or bracelet or some type of pendant. And if you are curious to know, as I was prepping this sermon, I spent many a moments on the Hellsberg Diamond website, um, and there are 146 different types of crosses that you can purchase. Now, I don't want you to go on your smartphone now, searching the web and going to order one, but you could get the sideways cross, which is very popular these days. Uh, You could get the uh, normal cross. You could get your silver cross, your gold cross, your yellow gold cross, your white gold cross, and on and on. Your choices of jewelry are endless. And for some people, simply that is what the cross means to them. It is something that they wear. Is the cross... Maybe perhaps for you something where Jesus, this man, went and did something that was a great example of how to be really selfless and just the ultimate showing of love. For some people, that's also their view of the cross, their view of Jesus, that he came and was ultimately just selfless and giving over of himself and that that's how you and I should be now as well. Perhaps... Uh, This time of Holy Week especially, we see all the TV shows and movies that come out. And so the only thing we really know about the cross is that Hollywood begins to make movies or TV shows related to these things. CNN came out with faith, fact, or forgery, finding and discovering the real person of Jesus last year. And still others, and this is maybe the saddest view of the cross of all, is that they think it is a case of divine child abuse, where the father knowingly and willingly puts his son there 
to die in its child abuse. What seems like utter foolishness to the world, that which is a stumbling block, as Paul says in Corinthians, is what we as believers have held on to for the last 2,000 years, is the glorious message of the cross. And if Phil Riken is correct that Christianity really is all about the cross, that that's the defining reality of the Christian faith, then how do we view it? How should we view Jesus' death on the cross? Did anything deeper happen at the crucifixion? Or was it simply just a good man, a good teacher, dying for seemingly no good reason? And with that being said, I invite you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to page 680 again to follow along as we go through this text, Matthew 27, and to study the story of the crucifixion, which could be very familiar to some of us and others of us. Maybe it is even the first time we're hearing this message. So let us look at it with fresh eyes and listen with fresh ears. Because it's within this text that we see the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, willingly suffer the horror of the cross for the sake of once and for all paying the penalty for sin and forgiving and then cleansing sinful man. Jesus endures the horror of the cross so that then we can be forgiven. So what was this horror that he experiences? Well, he experiences physical pain during the crucifixion. Particularly, let's look our eyes to 32 to 38 As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. We pick up the crucifixion story in the middle of chapter 27. And so as a way of looking backwards, you see the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of the time, they were upset with this person, Jesus. He was not the Messiah that they were expecting. They were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for someone who was going to come in and overthrow the Romans, was going to come in and rule. And yet this Jesus came as the suffering servant. He came as one who would rather humbly die on a cross for the sake of our sins. And so they became angry, not to mention the claims that Jesus made, that he could forgive sins. Well, only God can forgive sins, they would say. Well, that's the point, that Jesus is God. And so they became so angered by this that they were looking for an opportunity to kill him. Judas, one of the disciples, steps up willingly to the plate, all according to the Father's will, of course, but steps up willingly and hands Jesus over, which he'll respond in chapter 27 in the beginning part if you look, oh, I've betrayed innocent blood. He recognizes what he's done. And so Jesus, after being betrayed by Judas and arrested, brought before a kangaroo-esque type court scenario in front of the religious leaders, well, now they want to bring him to Pilate to put him to death. So they need to bring him in front of Pontius Pilate, in front of the Romans, 
so that the death sentence can be handled out, handed out. And that's then where we enter into now. That Jesus goes through, again, this, the mob is furious, the mob is going, crucify him, crucify him, put him to death. And Pilate, in, which has become now very famous, washes his hands of the situation and hands Jesus over to the first part of the physical pain that he will suffer during this crucifixion process. The king of the Jews has been handed over to death. And this first part of the crucifixion process was a flogging. And you see that in verse 26. And a flogging was done with a short whip, uh, with leather thongs or ropes attached to it, with bits of, little bits of metal, uh, pieces of sharp bone. And the person, this being Jesus in this scenario, was brought there in front of the soldiers, was stripped down, and then the Roman soldier would begin to whip and tear and whip and tear the flesh. And I don't want to get too graphic here, but you can understand that this was not a comfortable process, but this was just the beginning. And in Roman law, there was no rule about how many lashes was sufficient. In fact, they would just simply wait until the person was close to death. And you'd say, oh, that's, I guess that's kind of merciful. They're going to stop before he dies. Well, no, they're going to stop because then they want him to endure the humiliation, the shame, and then the pain of actually being crucified. And so they bring him to the point of death. Then they throw the robe back on him, his clothes back on him. And then he begins to walk and do this walk of shame out of the city where we, he will eventually be crucified. Isaiah 53 says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus, wounded, battered, and beaten. And now we arrive at our text for this, morning, this evening, verse 32, where Jesus, so burdened by the pain of the flogging, has been so severe that he can't even carry his own cross. And so they compel someone, they force this man, Simon, to carry it for him. Oh, what a difference a few days makes. In an entrance into the city of Jerusalem, people were saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, laying palms down. Everybody was thrilled. The king had come. Everything was wonderful. Oh, what a difference a few days makes. As he's paraded out of the city now, battered and beaten, not even able to carry his own cross and walking simply through the masses as they hurl insults at him, mocking him as he walks towards his certain death. If you read through this text, you'd quickly notice that he really doesn't mention the crucifixion, the actual crucifixion much. Matthew simply says in 35, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Almost just as a passing moment in this, in this account. Well, I, I think in Matthew's eyes, he's looking at the deeper picture of what's going on here. He's not necessarily so concerned with glorying in the pain that Jesus went through. But rather, I think he's looking at the bigger picture. He's looking at what was really going on here. But... I say all that because 
For us, crucifixion, at least last check, is not a normal thing that we experience daily. It's not something that you and I are maybe overly familiar with. We've heard the stories maybe, but it's not something that we see every day, frankly. I hope we never see it. And so in this moment, I'd like to take just a moment or two to to mention the pain that Christ experienced. And maybe the best description of the horror of actually being crucified is provided by Dr. C. Truman Davis. He says these words, The cross is placed on the ground. The exhausted man, after already being flogged, is stripped and then is thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. You can imagine how that would feel. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist, and he drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, and then the cross is lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified and left there to hang and to die. Oh, and sometimes this process could take a long time. Well, and then Davis continues and he says, As the arms fatigue, as cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain, and with these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his back as he moves up and down against the timber. Certainly that's enough to give me at least the the heebie-jeebies. It's not good. It's painful. And I don't mention it because I just want to glorify in this physical pain that Christ went through, but I think it is important to always keep that in mind, the physical pain he went through on account of you and me. And if this physical pain wasn't enough, certainly the shame, the humiliation, and the trauma, the emotional trauma that was while he was there certainly was a lot. And we see that in verses 39 to 44. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This mocking, this shame, this humiliation, this emotional trauma that Jesus experiences begins actually in the section before it, where the soldiers, after beating him, they actually uh, now pretend to worship him. Oh, you're the king of the Jews, and they dress him up in all these royal vestments just to really mock Jesus. And now as he's been led through and paraded through the streets and now actually hung on the cross, now he is eligible to be destroyed, to be mocked, to be, uh, to be yelled at, to have things thrown at him by all those who are around. 
By those who are passing by, they say, you who are going to destroy the temple, build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Simply those who are uh, wagging their heads as they're passing by. And they're passing by because normally uh, crucifixions, they would happen near major roads. So if you can just picture driving down 495, and all of a sudden you see not crosses, okay, because we don't crucify people anymore, but you see, um, you see lethal injection happening on one side, you see the electric chair, and you keep driving down. That's sort of what it was like. So as you're walking into the city or out of the city, you could see the people hanging there, fighting for their lives, free for you to mock them if you so choose, and also just to watch them painfully slip away and gradually then go to their death. This placement outside the city was now where these passerbyers were coming, wagging their heads, saying, oh, Jesus, you who said you were so great, (laughs) you're just like those robbers now, hanging on the cross, going to your death. It was a good reminder also for those who were passing by that the Roman Empire means business, so you better not cross them. As Jesus is not only being taunted by those passing by, but he's also being taunted by the chief priests, the religious leaders. And in 42, they say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Come down now from the cross. If you do, we'll believe in you. Something tells me that that really actually wouldn't have been the case because they had, Jesus had proven so many things throughout his life. He had done miracles. He had claimed and forgiven sins. And yet the people, with everything he did, were still not willing to believe and to follow him. It's in this that I go back to Isaiah 53, this message of the suffering servant where it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus was not the Messiah that these people wanted. And so therefore then they wanted to get rid of him. He again would turn things upside down. They wanted a Messiah who would come and rule And he came as the suffering servant who would come and die for them. One commentator notes that despite all of the humiliation with just hanging there on the cross, despite the shame, despite the insults and the mocking of others, it was love ultimately that held Christ there on the cross, not those nails. Jesus was mocked. He was humiliated. He suffered great physical pain, yet it was for a purpose. It was all according to the will of the Father. And so why did Christ suffer the horror of the cross? Simply so that man could be forgiven, so that man could be cleansed of their sin. And how did he accomplish this? Well, we see in 45 to 50 that he became sin for us. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit 
As Jesus hung on the cross, darkness overcame the landscape. God was meeting out his just judgment on sin. And it was against his only son. It wasn't just the physical pain or some emotional trauma, the shame and the humiliation that Christ bore on the cross, but in fact, he bore our sin on the cross. He became sin for us, as 2 Corinthians 5 speaks of. And sin are simply those things that we've done wrong, the ways that we have disobeyed God, not lived up to his perfect law. We continually miss the mark in our obedience to him. A few weeks ago, I was uh, playing uh, We Fit, and I have a, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't good, I can tell you that long term. Uh, and one of my buddies who I was playing with, he has this thing where he figures out his We Fit age. Has anybody ever done that? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, my age was pretty old, uh, a lot older than what I was, shall I say. It wasn't old, it was older than where I was hoping to be. Uh, I'm 30, I was not looking to be in my mid-50s, let's just say that. But one of the first tests that you're given is a balance test, and they want to see how closely you can be to the center point. And they want to see, okay, are you, you know, leaning forward on your toes, are you back on your heels? And for myself, I was sort of all over, not overly stable. And so if my wee fit age is any indication, or if my balance test is any indication of my sin and how much I miss the point, um, it tells us how far away we truly are from living up to God's laws. We miss the center point continually. We miss the mark if you think of a bullseye. We sin, we disobey. And for that, then, we're liable to be punished Yet now in this moment, Jesus becomes sin for us. Jesus, the one who was perfect in every way, holy, righteous in his standing, knowing no sin. And yet in this moment, he becomes sin for you and for me. He substitutes himself in our place to atone, to make right our relationship with God. We rightfully should have been on the cross facing death, facing the punishment for our sin, yet God in his mercy, in his unending grace, giving us what we do not deserve, offers up his son to repair the relationship with him. God takes the initiative. It's not that you and I did something to deserve it, but it's rather that God, in his great love, sends his son. He's the one who's doing the activity. Jesus, who was in perfect union with the Father, now bears our sin upon himself for the sake of those whom God has called. Our sin was imputed to him, at least that's the theological term. It was credited to his account. It was considered as his. And he takes it and then pays for it on the cross. Spurgeon says this, a wonderful theologian, the prince of preachers, as he was called, He says this about the crucifixion of Christ. They bewailed innocence, maltreated, goodness persecuted, love bleeding, meekness about to die. But my heart has a deeper and more bitter cause to mourn. My sins were the scourges or the floggings which lacerated those blessing shoulders and crowned with thorn those bleeding brows. My sins cried, crucify him, crucify him and laid the cross upon his gracious shoulders. His being led forth to die is sorrow enough for one eternity. 
but my having been his murderer is more, infinitely more, grief than one poor fountain of tears can express. And this bearing of our sin, our sin that put him there on the cross, causes Jesus to exclaim, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so what's Jesus saying in this moment? Because everybody else around him is running hither and yon to figure out what's going on. Well, it's in this moment that as the Father's wrath is being poured out against sin, that there is a break in the sweet communion between Father and Son, between God the Father and Jesus Christ. There's some measure of a separation that is occurring here as Christ becomes sin for us, as God's wrath is being poured out upon sin. Christ ends up facing the judgment of God, in a sense, in his own mind alone. But yet, and I need to be careful because some commentators uh, can definitely go the other way, it doesn't mean that he has lost hope in God or he has turned away from God because he utters, my God, my God. That even in the midst of this moment, he's expressing great trust in his heavenly Father. Jesus, who's mocked, battered, beaten, and separated from the loving communion that he was accustomed to experiencing, now drinks the full cup of God's wrath against sin. And it's when this fullness of God's wrath has been drunk that Christ gives up his spirit. That even in this moment, Jesus is in control of when he's giving it up. And he yields his spirit. And from now on, everything changes. Everything changes for why we're here tonight and why we're here celebrating some baptisms. Everything changes in this moment and wondrous signs occur with Christ's death. And so what are these wonderful signs? What are these promises that now you and I have that we can hold on to? One is that we're given access to a holy God through our mediator, Jesus. And the second is that we have a promise of a future bodily resurrection. Let's look at verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, the earth shook, the rocks split. There are tremendous signs that are coming with Christ's death. This was no ordinary man. Rather, this was the very Son of God. In the tabernacle and then in the temple in the Old Testament was the inner room called the Holy of Holies. And Leviticus 16 tells us that once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies where the very presence of God was and would sacrifice for the sins of himself, his family, and for the nation of Israel. Well, so too now do we have Jesus as our great high priest, one who enters into the Holy of Holies. He not only is the high priest, but he is the sacrifice. He lays himself on the cross the perfect lamb, the one without sin, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be redeemed. And therefore, as the curtain tears from top to bottom, signifying that God is the one doing this action, it is nothing of you and I that he's opened the way to himself through the mediator, Jesus Christ, and through the payment of his sins on the cross The wrath of God has been fully and finally paid for. And now, 
we can then enter into the holy places with full assurance of faith, as Hebrews says, knowing that our high priest has gone before us, mediating a better covenant. The way of God is no longer through temple sacrifices, the types and the shadows, but rather is only through the shed blood of Christ. We see in this moment that as our sin is imputed to him, as it is credited to his account, well now so too his righteousness is credited to ours, is imputed to ours, is considered ours. Not guilty is the declaration. We are now declared righteous because of the work of Christ. Our sins that were crimson are now as white as snow. At the end of World War II, as the whole world seemed to be celebrating, rejoicing in the streets, parties everywhere, celebrating this victory over Europe, Harry Truman had these words to say, Our rejoicing is sobered and subdued by a supreme consciousness of the terrible price we have paid to rid the world of Hitler and his evil band. Let us not forget, my fellow Americans, the sorrow and the heartache which today abide in the homes of so many of our neighbors, neighbors whose most priceless possession has been rendered as a sacrifice to redeem our liberty. If I could give you a single watchword, he says, for the coming months, that word is work, work, and more work. We must work to finish the war. Our victory is only half over. If there are any words that I can give you this evening, it's that the war is over and there's no more working. Stop working. Stop trying to earn salvation. Stop trying to earn favor with God. Stop trying to fix the problem on by yourself because Christ has already paid for it. The victory has been won. The war is over. No more work needed, but rather repenting and believing in what he's done. We have a Savior, and it's Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Not only now do we have access to God, but now maybe two of the most interesting verses in the Gospel of Matthew come to us. And the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. This is the only place in the Gospels where this text is mentioned. And we don't know who these exact saints were, but we can get, grasp the greater promise here. And it's a promise that with Christ's death comes a future bodily resurrection for those who are in Christ. That is, when Christ returns, we will then have a bodily resurrection and go to be with him for those who are in Christ. And Matthew, I think, contributes so much to the gospel here is that he doesn't separate Christ's death from resurrection, but rather he brings the two together in this beautiful text. And so we have a promise of a future resurrection And that should come as a wonderful comfort to us as we think about death because we know it is not just the end but simply the beginning of a life lived with Christ and him for eternity. Jesus suffered through the horror of the crucifixion so that we could be forgiven of our sin. In 1707, Isaac Watts wrote the famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. These are the words from the fourth verse. Where the whole realm of nature mine, 
that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so the question becomes for us today, as we read this text, how will we respond to the message of the cross? As we look at our text, we see that there are plenty of choices for us to choose from. Maybe some of you are sitting there and you feel a little bit like the people who are passing by, wagging their heads, and maybe you do that with other Christians. You sort of just wag your head and go, man, they have really fallen off the tracks here. Me needing to be saved? Come on, no way. Maybe you begin to think that you're above them in same, some way. And you say, Jesus, come on, show me that you can do it. Maybe that's where you are. Perhaps you might relate more to the religious leaders and say, Jesus, prove it. If you just did, if you would just help me with, show me, I would believe. Maybe you're there. Are you like the soldiers who mock Jesus, professing to worship him in some way, but really it's just mocking, it's just humiliating him, and then they go about the rest of their day like it's a normal day, ready to crucify him? Will you respond like the disciples, running away in fear? Or perhaps will you respond like the centurion and those gathered around him that say, surely this man was the son of God. My hope is that that would be those words in your heart and in your mouth. Surely that this man was not just some ordinary man, but rather he was God himself on the cross paying for our sins. Do you believe that Christ is who he said he was? Do you believe that he came and lived the life that you and I could not live for the sake of saving us from our sins, for paying fully and finally on the cross so that we could come into a right relationship with him? Does this amazing love that Christ displays demand your soul, your life, your all? If it does, if you believe that, well, praise God that he's drawn you into a saving relationship, but may I encourage you now, spend time thinking of one or two people in your life that don't know Christ. Spend time thinking about them, praying for them. I know Jonathan has talked about your top 10, your most wanted people, those people that don't know Christ. Well, pray for them, and not only that, but then pray for the opportunity to invite them to one of these services. Coming up on the 26th, you have your big day service. And then on the 27th, you have your sunrise service. Certainly invite these people, whether they're coworkers, friends, family. Invite them to hear this wonderful message of Christ and him crucified. Today, we celebrate two people, Derek and Heather, as they enter the waters of baptism, as they claim Christ as their Lord. What a wonderful opportunity to hear the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. And therefore, then, we should desire to share that message with others wherever we are. But maybe some of you are still unsure. Maybe you've been coming in these doors week in and week out, and you're still kind of figuring things out, still thinking about it. My encouragement to you is to talk to somebody who is up here, set up a meeting with Pastor Jonathan, read through the rest of 
this story, and I'd even say go back a couple chapters and read through this ending chunk of Matthew and think of two things. One, could this be true? And two, if it is true, do I believe it? And am I gonna live my life by it? If you have more questions, though, certainly see people up here or speak with Jonathan. Because Jesus endured the horror of the cross, the emotional pain, the physical pain, this pain of bearing sin, the worst form of execution that the Jews and the Romans could muster for the sake of being the final sacrifice for sins, to fully and finally pay for our redemption so that we could be forgiven. It wasn't because we deserved it. It wasn't because somehow we merited it within us. But rather it was solely by God's design, by God's grace and his mercy. The only question then is, how will you respond? Let's pray. Father God, uh, we praise you for this day. We thank you for the baptisms that we're about to celebrate that you have drawn Derek and Heather to come into a saving relationship with you. And Lord, we pray that as we, as we sit through this, that we would share, that we would rejoice with them, and that we would ultimately look towards you and rest in what you've accomplished on our behalf. So Father, may you draw us ever nearer towards you, all to your glory. Amen.